You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. The private and public flats are not salt and peppered throughout an entire block. We have one block for public housing tenants and another block quite separate for private tenants, mm-hmm. um, for private residents. Uh, and, and often they're separated by gardens. And in the case of Carlton, they're separated by a wall. Um, you know, which we kind of call the Berlin Wall, that, you know, actually prevented public housing tenants from going into the private gardens of the private residents. In 2006, the Minister for Melbourne, Bronwyn Pike, told the Carlton Residents Association that the Carlton Redevelopment Project would, quote-unquote, break down the public housing ghetto. The ghetto Bronwyn refers to is the Carlton Public Housing Estate an estate that prior to the redevelopment project was home to a rich and vibrant community. Everyone knew each other, they babysat each other's kids, borrowed sugar when it ran out, and for many of them spoke the same language. Some families worked, others didn't. The government didn't see or refused to see these communities as they were, rich in culture, community and connection. The Carlton Housing Redevelopment Plan began work in 2006 and ended in 2012. In those six years, several walk-up flats were demolished to make space for a new estate that would house both private and public residents. The Carlton Redevelopment Project was underpinned by a social mix policy. Social mix policies argue that having a mix of public and private households in one residential space would create benefits for everyone, but primarily for public housing residents. Low-income households would benefit from living near middle-class residents because then they would model themselves after the behaviours of those middle-class residents. In other words, they'd model the work ethics and attitudes of their wealthier neighbours and as such, lift themselves out of poverty. Dr Kate Shaw and Abdullahi Jama published a study on the Carlton Redevelopment Project. Their research asked the obvious but very important question, why do we need social mix? On today's episode of Women on the Line, Dr. Kate Shaw tackles that question and more. This week's episode is presented by Anya Saravanan and produced and edited by Ayan Sharwa. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Kate. Before we look at the topic for today, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? My name is Dr. Kate Shaw uh, and I'm an urban geographer at the University of Melbourne. And you don't have to answer this question, but I'm curious to know, why did you choose this particular field of study? Oh, I think I just grew into it, really. Um, I've long been um, a housing activist um, and, you know, looking at gentrifying cities uh, all over the world, but, you know, obviously including the places where we all live and wanted to think more about what was going on and research those processes. It's really exciting to hear when, you know, academics tell us that they've been on the activist side of things because they know exactly, you know, what they're fighting for through, you know, not a different medium, but another medium as well. So that's, that's really cool Mm -hmm. to hear. So let's talk about today's 
topic. Um, mm. In Victoria, there are more than 40,000 plus households on a waiting list for public housing. And yet public housing land continues to be sold off. It seems like such an obvious question, but why is the government not building more public housing? Because governments don't want to be in the business of providing housing. Um, I mean, we could be cynical and say governments don't care about the poor. I don't know that that's a completely fair way of characterising um, Australian governments or state governments at least. Um, but neoliberal politics have certainly uh, crept into Australian politics in the last two to three decades such that there is now um, a very strong and I think in some quarters genuinely held belief that the private market is the best deliverer of, of public goods and notwithstanding the evidence um, that is increasingly uh, compiling and accumulating that this is not the case, um, it's very difficult for governments to shift a fundamental ideological focus. And you published alongside Abdullahi Jama a study into the Carlton Housing Redevelopment Project. Can you give us an right. overview of what that study was about? Yeah, Abdullahi did his master's thesis with me um, in the School of Geography, and and look, it was a very it was a very interesting thesis. He did some really excellent work. Um, the thesis was called "Why Do We Need Social Mix?" Um, and his premise was when government policies to build private housing on public housing estates in order to fund the upgrades to the public housing that's on those sites. Um, and with this ostensible um, benefit to the public housing tenants of having more private tenants on the estate, he said, actually, the effects are often quite detrimental. So, for example, and he, he opens his thesis with this wonderful sort of vignette um, when the kids from the estate are playing basketball outside um, and some of the white private residences, residents that have moved into the estate are complaining about the fact that there are black kids hanging out on the basketball court, um, that they don't like the lights on at night um, because it disturbs their sleep or whatever it is. So, um, at, you know, at a certain time, the lights go off. And so in Abdullahi's vignette, it's sort of like, oh, man, okay, the lights have gone off again. It's like, you know, okay, so people are complaining. So, you know, how is this, how is this social mix actually good for us? Mm. Yeah. Can you explain what social mix means? Yeah, it's, well, it's a mix of housing tenures, firstly, I suppose. Um, the idea from a certain kind of sector of somewhat patronising do-gooders, I would think, 
is that there is this idea that private middle class residents bring somehow a um you know a civilizing or positive you know influence on public housing tenants um um, the, the way that that mix is actually enacted on public housing estates that are being redeveloped is that the land around the towers they were quite you know, familiar with, the, you know, the high rise towers, uh, you know, that, that characterised public housing estates um, in uh, the inner cities of Australia uh, and the UK and the US, of course. Um, the general pattern is that the land around those towers is sold to developers. The developers build private housing on that land and that the profits they make from the private housing are able to fund upgrades to or construction of new public housing. Mm. So there's a, um, well, there's a bunch of problems with that in that to start with anyway, the program um, resulted in fewer public housing units being built than what were demolished, if they were demolished, usually the walk-ups, um, the old walk-ups would be demolished because they yield a lot of land uh, and, and you would actually have a reduction in the number of um, public housing units. Mm -hmm. um, then they started to increase the number of units but decrease the number of beds. Uh, and often in the walk-up flats, um, that's where the three and four bedroom uh, apartments are. Um, and when they're being replaced by one and two bedroom apartments, not only have you got fewer um, tenancies, fewer beds and, and bedrooms, um, for people on public housing waiting lists. But also there is a kind of a cultural cleansing, right? Um, because often the families um, that require three and four bedroom flats uh, increasingly in Australia, in, 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 in inner Melbourne and inner Sydney in, at least, um, are refugee families, often, often from the Middle East and you know, the Horn of Africa uh, is, is a very kind of typical um, group that had had big families that used those um, larger flats and so when they are being relocated and replacement flats are one and two bedrooms those families can't come back. I think more problematically and, and what Abdulhali was getting at is that this idea of you know middle-class white people um, having a positive influence on the social mobility is the words they use of um, public housing tenants, often people of colour. Um, even if there were some positive influence, and that is not proven by any means, but even then, it actually is premised on people mixing on actually people from different cultural backgrounds um, and groups and socioeconomic status mm. talking. Yeah. But in any event, the mixing doesn't occur for a whole bunch of reasons. And this is where Abdullahi's work was really interesting, but he was saying that there are a lot of uh, divisions along cultural, ethnic, religious, lines there are a whole lot of different fault lines um, that provide obstacles to people crossing over 
And if they are to be crossed over, then the people actually need to be side by side. They need to be living side by side with each other. And of course, in this program that we have in Melbourne, the flats, the private and public flats are not salt and peppered throughout an entire block. We have one block for public housing tenants and another block quite separate for private tenants, mm -hmm. um, for private residents. Uh, and, and often they're separated by gardens. And in the case of Carlton, they're separated by a wall, um, you know, which we kind of call the Berlin Wall, that, you know, actu actually prevented public housing tenants from going into the private gardens of the private residents. That was an, 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 an initiative of the developer because the developer was concerned um, that private tenants may not want to live so closely to public tenants. Um, so there's all these kind of really like nasty assumptions sure. um, that go on here. Yeah. But look, at the end of the day, mm. the actual amount of space for public tenancy and public occupation is, is reduced. Mm. Um, and, and so it's perfectly reasonable to talk about the estates under this program as being privatised. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. Now that we have a better understanding of the Carlton Redevelopment Project, let's unpack the arguments used to justify the wholesale sell-off of public land. And the other thing that the supporters of social mixed policies often argue is that this model reduces concentrations of poverty. I have a two-part question in relation to that statement. A, does this argument hold weight? And B, are there reasons why certain communities would choose to live in concentrated areas? To, to take the first question first, does it actually hold weight? That depends entirely on the scale um, at which you are looking at it. If you look at the Carlton or Kensington or actually any of the public housing estates in, in Melbourne, they are little kind of islands of you know, concentrated poverty. That's why those people are in public housing in seas of private housing. The estates are little islands in oceans of suburbs of gentrifying privately owned you know neighborhoods so um if you look at it at that broader scale by no means is the um the program actually deconcentrating poverty at all it is just kind of reducing the little pocket of poverty if you home in on that little pocket actually the amount of public land on the estate has been shrunk and when they're keeping the same number of apartments there, um, even if it's not the same number of people, they're actually increasing the concentration <laughs> of poverty because they've squished them into one end of the estate. But again, uh, I think your question is, your second part of your question is a really good one. And that is people can form very strong community networks and you know have very strong senses of, solidarity among their neighbours when they are of a certain socioeconomic or you know or, or cultural or ethnic or religious group 
uh, and even when it's kind of mixed up. I mean, there's been a lot of really interesting work done by a guy called Chris Allen in the UK, who talks about those very, very strong supportive community networks um, that form um, just where there's a common socioeconomic base, even if there's a huge amount of cultural and ethnic and religion, religious diversity within that kind of socioeconomic group. Um, and of course, those um, those bonds can be incredibly important to not just economic well-being, but mental and, and social well-being. Um, and in fact, there is already data coming out to suggest that the people who are relocated from those estates and you know separated from their from their communities, from their social support networks, from their doctors and community health services and so on and so on. And remember, inner Melbourne and inner Sydney are very well resourced, right? I mean, we've got community health centres, pools, sports centres, libraries, um, public transport, close to shops. Do you know I mean? They, they're actually really, really well serviced areas. Um, which is a bit different to, you know, the some of the estates in the US that are, you know, the scenario of the wire in Baltimore, where you've got not just, um, you know, one or two high rises, but you've got multiple estates, and they are in themselves encased within um, much broader private as well as public neighbourhoods of, you know, deep poverty with it has to be said, a very, very strong racial entity. I mean, this is not just about, these are not just poor neighbourhoods, they're black neighbourhoods. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge stigmatisation that goes around those sorts of hoods, you know, of, of the hoods of the wire, um, that simply doesn't apply in a Melbourne and inner Sydney. Um, the estates in inner Sydney and inner Melbourne are unlike the... Uh, estates of you know some of the Rust Belt cities and more impoverished cities of the US um, where there is deep and systematic um, and very extended poverty. Yeah absolutely but it looks like the redevelopment program or any programs in the future like that aren't going to be slowing down anytime soon. So how do communities save their neighbourhoods? And, you know, given your activist background, what are some, you know, what are some practical things people can do? Well, organise. Um, and actually, it might just be worth talking about the, um, the lockdown in the towers in, uh, in Flemington and, and, uh, and North Melbourne sure, recently, yes. when there were some, um, you know, COVID-19 cases identified there. Uh, and I thought this was a very interesting it was a very revealing response from the government that they locked down the towers. They kept the people inside the towers who were sick, virtually guaranteeing that more people within those towers were going to get sick, but protecting the broader community from those tenants. And I think that that absolutely put the lie to the Department of Housing's claim that all of its policy interventions are in the interests of the tenants, the public housing tenants. This intervention was not in the interests of the tenants of the towers. And in fact, a you know, widely renowned 
um, epidemiologist, um, Mary Louise McCord, who is quite a, uh, quoted a lot now in the papers and on the ABC, says the most rational and humane response to recognition of a cluster of virus infection is to take those people who are infected out mm. of the community to protect that community and put them into a dedicated um, treatment area. So I just think it really, that that response really um, showed up what the department's view of the tenants that's supposed to provide for really is. Yeah, yeah. Organising um, in all sorts of ways and highlighting the differential treatments um, and the negative effects is obviously uh, a very effective way of doing it. And in fact, um, lobbying by a number of um, affordable housing and, and, and public housing advocacy groups has resulted in um, a change in the current government's policy that number one, there will be more um, community housing providers involved in the, um, the redevelopment program so that rather than private housing being developed, more community housing will be developed on the public housing estate. That is a, you know, a reasonably positive outcome. There have been commitments to um, increases in not just the number of flats, but the number of beds and bedrooms um, on the estates for public housing tenants. Again, I mean, uh, the increase is only 10%, 10% increase, <clears throat> which is pathetic. I mean, with all of that space, you know, it could and should be so much more than that. Um, and, you know, I'd be the first person to say that there is a hell of a lot of wheel spinning that goes into getting, you know, better results mm -hmm. um, than were the case prior to that wheel spinning. But, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into relatively poor results. You know, there's steps in the right direction, but there is so much further that we can go. Um, it's a long, it's a long haul, you know, I mean, and, and, and I think, you know, social justice activism is a long haul. So, you know, I mean, I think we just have to regard it as this is our life, you know, these are our lives. This is, Absolutely. you know, this is, what, this is what we do, you know, we yeah. fight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really good, hopeful point to end. Um, we want to thank Dr. Kate Shaw for joining us on Women on the Line. As Dr. Shaw mentioned, community organising is one way to push back against greedy developers. There are a number of community-led groups fighting to save public housing, and we'd like to highlight two groups based in Victoria. The first group is the Safe Public Housing Collective. They're a grassroots collective and can be reached on Facebook at Safe Public Housing Collective. One word, that's Safe Public Housing Collective. You can visit their website at safepublichousing.com. Another group doing good work is Friends of Public Housing. This group is made up of public housing tenants and their supporters. You can find them on Facebook at F-O-P-H-V-I-C. And of course, check out their website, safepublichousing.blogspot.com. That's safepublichousing.blogspot.com. 
Women on the Line is one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender diverse broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email at womenonthelinegmail.com. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. Today's episode was presented by Anya Saravanan and produced and edited by Ayan Sherba. Our theme music is by Ripley Cavera. We leave you today with Emily Waramara's haunting track, Black Boy. I'm Anya Saravanan and we hope you have an amazing week. Black Boy
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.